that was how I overcame those self-limiting beliefs. I, I felt that these things controlled me. And it wasn't until I learned paths to gain greater agency over what I was doing and to actually be, I think, brave enough to go deeper. Now I could start making progress. Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. My guest today is Nir Ayal, one of the world's leading experts in productivity, procrastination, and how to build habit-forming products. His first book, Hooked, was a Wall Street Times bestseller. Pretty much everyone in the world who is building an app or a platform has read this book, and if they haven't, then they probably should. His second book, Indistractable, also a bestseller, was about how to not let technology, social media, and other things around us distract and control us. I've heard several people credit this book as being life-changing for them. When I was thinking about people I would love to interview on the topic of self-doubt and limiting beliefs, Nir was one of the first people I thought about. I'm so excited to get his take on how much self-doubt and limiting beliefs play a part in procrastination and ourselves getting in the way of things we want to do. Why is it that intelligent, motivated people procrastinate? Because everyone procrastinates, (laughs) fundamentally. So why does everyone procrastinate? Everyone procrastinates because procrastination is an emotion regulation problem. We think of it as a time management issue or a busyness issue or a technology issue. But in fact, uh, at the end of the day, it's an emotion regulation problem. It's an impulse control issue. It's when we prioritize the escape from discomfort of a present situation and we discount that. We think that's more important than the discomfort we're going to feel somewhere out in the future, all right? Because procrastination is fundamentally delaying something we need to do despite harmful consequences. So we procrastinate because we're not good at dealing with that discomfort that we're feeling, whether it's the boredom that comes with the task, whether it's the stress, the anxiety, whatever feelings we're looking to escape from, we procrastinate as a salve, as a quick solution to that discomfort because we don't know how to deal with it in a healthy way. Hmm. Does everyone really procrastinate? There's there's a lot of shame, I think, attached to procrastination. Yeah, we find that almost everyone does procrastinate. Now, they procrastinate on different stuff. (laughs) It's very interesting that some people, they won't procrastinate on work, They'll procrastinate on physical fitness, whereas other people (laughs) love going to the gym, but they'll procrastinate on doing their work. So we find that in various areas of your life, you know, what tends to happen, this makes complete sense. It's the task that you find easy, that you won't procrastinate on, the things that you enjoy doing, that you won't have any trouble doing because you'll want to do them. Whereas the stuff that we invariably have in our life that we don't want to do, that's the stuff that we tend to procrastinate on. That makes a lot of sense. In your book, Indistractable, you discuss 
the importance of managing external distractions and getting a handle on certain impulses that take us away from doing important work. As this is a podcast about self-doubt and self-limiting beliefs, I'm curious to hear your take on how these things, self-doubt and limiting beliefs, how they play a part in how distractible we are. Very, very much so. And these these limiting beliefs, there's a whole section in my book about reimagining our temperament. And I'll, I'll give you a great case study. Uh, for many years, the psychology community believed in this concept called ego depletion. And even if you don't know this fancy terminology, you've probably felt something before like this. Ego depletion is when we feel like our willpower has been depleted. And this was a very popular notion a few years ago that you run out of willpower the way someone would run out of battery on the phone or you just run out of charge. I'm out of it. It's like gas in a gas tank. And there's actually quite a bit of research by one prominent scientist who did several studies that really did seem to reflect that people ran out of willpower until another group of researchers, as we do in the social sciences, if a study sounds kind of you know too good to be true or too simple, uh, we rerun the study, right? That's what replication is all about. We run the study again to see if we see similar results. And it turns out that many researchers ran this study over and over again. And it turns out that as far as we know to date, ego depletion is not real. It doesn't exist. That we do not run out of willpower. But in fact, it's a self-limiting belief. And here's how we know this. There's a researcher by the name of Carol Dweck. Uh, she's an all-star, fantastic hero of mine. She wrote a book called Mindset, which I'm sure many of your listeners have read. Mm-hmm. And Carol Dweck found that, in fact, ego depletion did exist. It did exist, but only among one group of people. Only one group of people. And that group of people were people who believed that willpower was a limited resource. So think about that for a minute. It doesn't exist unless you believe it does. So that's a perfect example, right? The people who believed, oh, I'm spent, right? I used to tell this to myself all the time. I would get home from work after a hard day and I'd say, oh, I've worked so hard. I'm so exhausted. I have no more willpower. Give me that pint of Ben and Jerry's. I'm going to sit on the couch and eat it, right? (laughs) And I did that because I believed that, oh, I'm spent. There's no more willpower left. But it turns out that's only true if you believe it's true. And so this leads us to all kinds of harmful behaviors. You know, the the latest reincarnation of this notion is this idea that we're all addicted to technology. I see this every day. It's so common. People don't even stop to think about how destructive and offensive it is, right? An addiction is a pathology. It's a terrible, terrible disease to be addicted to something. And so when we throw around this term that, oh, everybody's addicted to technology, we are minimizing what is otherwise a horrible pathology. There is no comparison between, ooh, I like checking Candy Crush or social media and an actual drug addiction. Anybody who has drug addiction in their family knows this is a different level, okay? So not only is it offensive to people who are suffering from addictions, it's actually harmful to the person who is saying this. Why? The word addiction comes from the Latin word addictio, which means slave. And it has those connotations. You're a slave to whatever you are addicted to. And so what happens is people say this self-limiting belief to the point where we all just believe it. It's taking away our agency. Every time you hear people say they're addicted to technology or technology is hijacking our brains, there's a book called Stolen Focus, right? It's not being stolen. We're giving it away. We're not addicted. We're distracted. And so by changing that verbiage and being realistic with ourselves and not letting ourselves off the hook, we are so desperate to say it's somebody doing it to us, right? 
a drug dealer who's pushing this substance on us, and then there's nothing we can do. We're slaves to it. We want to believe that Zuckerberg and all these tech companies are doing it to us. And, and, and they do play a role. I'm not saying they don't. I wrote the book Hooked. I know all their tricks. And I'm here to tell you they're powerful, but they're not that powerful. <laughs> there's so much we can do as long as we believe we can. So one of the worst things that we can do to fall right into the tech company's hands when it comes to distraction is believe that we're powerless because what do people do when they feel they're powerless? It's called learned helplessness. What do we do when we feel there's nothing to be done? Nothing. So we're doing exactly what these people who are distracting us want us to do as opposed to standing up and saying, wait a minute, this isn't an addiction. It's nothing more than a distraction. But that, of course, requires us to do something about the problem. Mm. Well, yeah, passing the blame, I suppose. Could you say that self-doubt is an internal distraction. Uh, so, so you mean internal trigger? Well, yes, I guess maybe that falls into an internal trigger, but it's like this internal thing that is distracting me. <laughs> it, I think it could be, a, so let, let, let's get clear on the definition of distraction. So distraction ends in the word action. Okay, A-C-T-I-O-N is at the end of the word distraction, reminding us that a distraction is not something that happens to us. It is an action that we ourselves take. So distractions are actions, okay? The opposite of distraction is traction, any action that moves us towards what we say we're going to do. So you've got traction, you've got distraction. Now, what I think what you're referencing are the triggers. And we've got internal triggers and we've got external triggers. External triggers, the pings, the dings, the rings, all these things in our outside environment that can lead us towards distraction. But that only accounts for about 10% of our distractions. 90% of our distractions are called internal triggers. Okay, so triggers are these internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states. And so I think that brings me to your question. Can they be internal triggers? Absolutely. Self-doubt feeds internal triggers, right? When you feel like I am incapable, I'm not good enough, I don't have enough degrees, I uh, don't have enough experience, I'm not the right race, gender, color, socioeconomic, whatever. When you have those type of self-doubting thoughts, you are raising the bar, you're creating more friction to the action you want to take. And the more friction there is, is specifically we call this cognitive load, the more thinking, the more mental gymnastics I have to pass through before I actually just do the darn thing I say I want to do, the less likely I am to do it. So you're absolutely right you know, that, that self-doubt uh, and self-limiting beliefs absolutely make us more likely to get distracted because that then becomes the easier path. You, you can think of the brain as cognitive miser, right? The brain wants to save energy, just like the body does too. It's much more likely that we'll sit on the couch and watch Netflix than it will be for us to go climb a mountain, right? We need extra motivation to do something difficult, physically demanding. And the same goes for things that are cognitively demanding. So the brain is like water. It takes the path of least resistance, unless there's something, there's some other reason to. So absolutely, if there's self-limiting beliefs, self-doubt, that can uh, create more friction and therefore make us less likely to do acts of traction and more likely to get distracted. You know, one thing that really interests me, Nir, is why some people who have all the access to resources and opportunity, they never really go for it in life and find themselves disappointed. And then there are a few people who don't have much in the way of opportunity and had barrier after barrier who go on to do extraordinary things. And the more you think about it, it comes down to beliefs. And, and perhaps quite an obvious example that, that always tends to come up is Oprah Winfrey, who had this very tough start in life and was told she'd never be successful. And one quote that she said was, you become what you believe. And I've heard you talk before about how people can get stuck in, in this script. What do you think is the big difference here in, in what's going on in people's minds? Yeah, it's one thing. It's how we interpret what has happened to us. And this is not 
something I made up. I mean, this is, you know, it goes back thousands of years. The Stoics said something like this, the Buddhist philosophers as well. There's, you know, this idea of you can't control what happens to you. You can only control how you respond to what happens to you and particularly how you perceive what happens to you. I mean, Oprah Winfrey is a, a beautiful example. She had terrible things happen to her, right? She had physical abuse. She had sexual abuse. She had all kinds of abuse in her life. And yet she used that history, what otherwise would be trauma to some people, she uses as rocket fuel to propel her forward. And you see this, by the way, all the time with high-performing people. They feel the same internal triggers that the rest of us do. They feel lonely. They feel stressed. They feel anxious. They feel uncertain. They feel bored. The same internal triggers. But what we find is that high-performers learn tactics to turn those internal triggers into rocket fuel that propels them towards traction, whereas distractible people, as soon as they feel bored, as soon as they feel lonely, as soon as they feel stressed, where's my phone? Where's the television? Where's the drink? Where's the drug? Where's the something to take my mind off of those problems? And of course, there's a fine line between the two, right? You see people who are at the top of their game in the arts, in sports, in business, right? You see oftentimes people who are driven to prove something to the world, the place they came from or the chip on their shoulder or the alcoholic father, they're going to prove something to the world by accomplishing these things. But of course, sometimes they also tip into escaping those troubles with substances or other distractions that can take them off track. But the people who are successful over the long term, the really high performance players in every industry, every field, that's the, the common trait. It's not that they somehow had worse or easier lives or backgrounds. It's that they have learned to deal with that discomfort, the common everyday discomfort, the friction of, okay, I just got to show up today and I got to do the work again and again and again. That's how excellence is, is achieved. It's just simply doing the same thing again and again and getting better at it over time. That requires you to be able to process those internal triggers differently from how most people do it. You're not escaping that dis that discomfort with distraction. Rather, you learn to lean into it and use it to propel you forward. Mm. It's a real superpower, right? Being able to overcome the narrative that other people may have set for you. Yeah, it's it's a superpower. And in fact, it used to be a necessity. And unfortunately, uh, this is the conspiratorial part of the show. <laughs> it's something that I think many parties have an interest in telling you you cannot do. You cannot do. That I think there are many parties out there, whether it's the psychopharmaceutical industry, lots of people out there, <laughs> the gurus, the booksellers, and I'm part of that industry too. Unfortunately, I don't have this philosophy that wants you to take comfort in being a victim, right? Mm -hmm. That that is a very comforting place for a lot of people to say, this happened to me, therefore, this is why I act the way I do. And sometimes that's warranted. I'm not victim blaming here. Sometimes that is the right response. And, and always the response is to get help. I'm not uh, saying we should not get help. It's about what kind of help we are looking for. Are we looking for help that tells us that we are broken, that tells us that we are unfixable, to tell us that the only solution is pharmaceuticals? Pharmaceuticals definitely play a role. But I'm of the belief that we way overprescribe, especially children, especially in the United States. We really rely on pills before skills. And that's a big mistake. We're going to look back. You know, I oftentimes have this, one of my favorite questions to have at dinner parties is uh, what kind of things will we look back at in 50 years and say, wow, that was crazy. We will look back in 50 years and say, how did we take so many drugs? How are we so medicated? Especially with many medications that turns out are no more effective than placebos <laughs> that we are just taking. We are stuffing ourselves full of placebos. By the way, placebos are wonderful. They do great work. The thing is, of course, that, that pharmaceuticals come many times with side effects. 
And so I'm not anti-medication, not at all. I'm not anti-diagnosing, not at all. What I am anti is jumping to those solutions before teaching us the proper skills. So it's skills before pills. Mm. I hope that's the case that in 50 years we'll look back. We might be medicating more in 50 years. <laughs> Could be, fingers, hopefully not. Fingers crossed. <laughs> okay, Nia, as this is a podcast about self-doubt and limiting beliefs, I want to ask you in a little bit if you can share some of yours. But first, I'd like to tell you about one of my self-limiting beliefs because I think it was caused by distraction. And my limiting belief is that I'm secretly kind of stupid, kind of dumb. And I can see where this belief comes from. As a child, I really struggled to concentrate at school to the extent I actually remember my mother taking me to the doctor and saying, Pippa can't focus. Her teachers are saying she's easily distracted. And I'm quite sure, as you were just talking about, if this happened today, I would be diagnosed with some sort of attention deficit disorder and and possibly put on pills. But this experience of struggling to concentrate in school contributed to me feeling kind of stupid that that I couldn't that I couldn't pay attention and this belief carried on into adulthood it went from sort of I just have to get through this lesson without feeling stupid to I just have to get through this meeting without without feeling stupid and and this is one reason I think that I've now developed this interesting self-limiting beliefs because doing self-reflection now at the age of 35 I can see just how much this belief has shaped my life how it impacted decisions, how I approached my career, especially in the early stages. And now I still feel like I'm trying to prove to myself and to others that I'm not stupid. And I think this all stems back from childhood and being distracted. So very long monologue I've just given, but I've got two questions stemming from this. So one is, how can we help kids who get distracted a lot? It's not necessarily a disorder, as we were saying, they're just distracted, they're kids. So how can we help them so their distraction doesn't cause long-term beliefs? And mm-hmm. also, if someone like me realizes in adulthood, God, this belief really resonates, what's what's your advice to getting past it? Yeah. Well, first of all, I sympathize and empathize. Uh, my father was an Air Force pilot, and he would always drill me on math drills. You know, he was back then they didn't have all the GPS and all the things that kind of do the math for you. But so he would constantly drill. I, I grew up, I was the youngest of three boys. My middle brother's seven years older. My oldest brother's 10 years older. And so they were way, way smarter than I was at that age, right? I was just way younger than them. And so we would, you know, while driving or something, my father was, okay, seven times three. And, you know, they would always get it before I would. And so I also had this kind of inferiority complex of what's, mm. what's wrong with me? It's so hard for me to, to keep up. And uh, so, yeah, I recall that self-limiting belief as well in, in my life. It's pretty common. I would say most people have some kind of inferiority or, or some kind of limiting belief that they're carrying around. I think... The best piece of advice I can give, and I'll tell you certainly what has worked for me, is to be incredibly careful about labels. Labels can be helpful if they're used correctly. And I'll give you an example of how it can be used correctly. Most often, how most people use them, they're very destructive. Because what happens when we give ourselves a label of, I'm stupid, I'm slow, I have a short attention span, I have an addictive personality, I am whatever, noun, rather than a verb, right? Rather than, you know, this is something I am struggling with. Like, for example, in the uh, addiction treatment community, we do not call people addicts anymore. That is a very bad thing to call people. People are not addicts, right? Nobody comes out of the womb with an addiction. That That doesn't happen, right? An addiction is something that people are struggling with. So we call them people struggling with addiction. Why? Because when you think of yourself, I am an addict, it becomes your identity, And it's a trap because there is comfort to be taken there. And I understand that comfort because it helps explain so much. 
when people hear, oh, you see, I've been ADHD this whole time. And again, I'm not saying that ADHD is not real. It is real. I'm saying that when people have this, pick any label that explains their past struggles, it can be very comforting because I can exchange my labels, right? It's like exchanging currency, (laughs) you know? I'm taking a a crappy currency and I'm exchanging it for the US dollar or the British pound. It's a better currency and it's a better label that I can put on myself. So I'm not stupid, I'm not slow, I'm this. And for the many people, that's very comforting and it has its place. The problem is when we think we are stuck in that label, when that defines who we are rather than something we are struggling with, if it limits our ability to try and change that behavior, because that's ultimately what is important, right? It's not that we have to change the identity. It's not that we have to change our actions or change our environment that we operate under. So that becomes where it becomes a, a really dangerous self-limiting belief, those labels. And, and we've all been down that spiral of, I'm struggling with something on a test or, I don't know, in a meeting. And the first thought in my mind is, oh, you see, this is because I'm slow. Or this is because I can't concentrate. This is because I I am a person who struggles with such and such, right? This is a label that I have for myself. I am that person. Then our mind is, is distracted from the problem itself, right? We're not thinking about what's going on in the meeting, what's being said, what's on the test. Our mind is already racing to, ah, this is why I can't do it. It's because I have this, this label I've associated to myself. So you're bound to do worse (laughs) simply for the fact that you are no longer thinking about the task at hand. So I think the first step is to ask ourselves what labels are serving us and what labels are we serving? And where we flip this, what we try and change is to adopt the monikers that serve us. How do we do that? We can pick our own monikers. People do it all the time, right? There's a, there's a joke that goes, how do you know someone is a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you, <laughs> right? There, yeah. Why is that? Why do people, and you can adopt any, I don't mean to offend vegans. I know lots of them, they're lovely people, but they do tend to tell you <laughs> about that identity. <laughs> and you could say that about all kinds of things. You, you hear that from people who are keto. You hear that from people who are devout Christians. You hear that from people who are trying to proselytize all kinds of things. Why do we adopt those labels? Because in many ways, they can serve us, right? But why? Because when we have a particular label, it stops us from going down certain paths. So a vegan doesn't wake up in the morning and say, ooh, I wonder if I should have a bacon sandwich for breakfast. No, they've pre-made that decision. It's who they are, which is why my book is titled Indistractable. Indistractable is meant to sound like indestructible. And it is a label that you yourself can adopt. You don't even have to read the book. Just start calling yourself indistractable. I am indistractable. And this can help you as opposed to saying, ooh, I'm having trouble concentrating in this meeting. Now I'm down going down this blame and shame spiral. You know what? I'm indistractable. This is something I know how to deal with. And now you have this toolkit, you have arrows in your quiver ready to go that reinforce a positive identity, a positive label that serves you rather than identity that hurts you. Mm. I remembered labels from your book. I was actually thinking about it quite recently and going back to ADHD. I've heard quite a few people say recently, oh, don't mind me, it's just my ADHD brain. I think that people do find it comforting to have that label as a, as a way to, you know, explain if they're easily distracted. I wonder though, if I were formally assessed, in fact, actually, so somebody we did a podcast with this really amazing, um, neuroscientist called Santiago Brand. He invited me to have a brain scan. And what this scan showed was that I have really low beta waves or something like that, which he said was tied to poor memory and poor focus. And he basically 
described my personality to me. And I said, does that mean I've got ADHD? And he said, I think so maybe he's a similar philosophy to you. He said, well, I don't really believe in ADHD, but hmm. some people would look at this and say, yes, you have ADHD. And I just remember thinking, actually, I don't want to think I have ADHD because I know that I will lean into that label and start using it as a bit of a crux. Yeah. I mean, you've unpacked a lot there that we should be very careful of. Why should we be so careful of this? Because let's say you do have ADHD. You've gotten this far. I've met you in person several times, and I think you're brilliant, right? And I think most people would say the same, which is why I was chuckling a little bit when you said that you had these insecurities, because I I don't see you like that at all. I think you're incredibly articulate, and I think most everyone you know will say that about you. Thank you. And if you have that label bouncing around the back of your head, you say things like this, that, you know, your friend said, oh, that's just my ADHD brain. And it's one thing almost to say that if you've actually been properly diagnosed, way too many people say that kind of thing. Mm. And they're not diagnosed, right? How many times yeah. have you heard people say, that's just my OCDness, or yeah. um, I'm addicted to this or that? These are clinical diagnoses, and we, we toss them around. So that's, that's really terrible, because you haven't even been diagnosed with the actual illness. So what are you doing putting a label on yourself for something you don't even have? And not only does that change your behavior, you start acting, right? She's so busy telling you and justifying her behavior that you probably would have never noticed if you just, if she had just said nothing, (laughs) she wouldn't have noticed. She wouldn't have taken attention off of what's going on and and refocus it on this disorder. And you wouldn't have noticed. But now, of course, you've primed the pump for both people to start looking at these potential problems. So now every little mistake, oh, it's that, it's it's this problem. You see this, by the way, not just with ADHD, you see this with people saying, oh, that's, uh, I'm getting old, mm. right? You hear this all the time. I, I can't do this, I can't do that. Oh, that's because I'm in my 40s. Well, <laughs> no, <there's, laughs> this is completely a self-limiting belief. And of course, it's self-reinforcing because, for example, the more people say, oh, that's my uh, elderly brain or, or my elderly body, the less they move, the less they think, the less they push themselves, the less they allow themselves to operate without these limitations. And so it becomes true. It actually becomes true. Your cognitive performance is impaired if you're thinking about one thing when you're supposed to be thinking about another. So by and large, these labels don't serve us. And what would you actually do differently about it? What would you do differently? Right. Maybe, okay, pharmaceuticals could be in your future. Maybe that's something you look to explore. I would caution you to do a lot of research because it turns out that many of these pharmaceuticals, which are powerful stimulants with significant side effects that you need to be aware of, let alone we know that there's all kinds of longer term consequences about psychologically being reliant on some kind of substance to be able to perform normally in day to day life, which is a decision that some people should make, but not everyone certainly. The first step before you get to the pills is what we talked about earlier. It's the skills. So, Everybody should learn how to become indistractable. You don't need to have, you know, low beta or ADHD or elderly brain. All of us can take a few minutes, learn these tactics to become indistractable and see the performance benefits, right? See how our life is improved as opposed to jumping quickly to, okay, give me the solution in a pill bottle. I think that's a big mistake. Okay, Nir, I'd like to come on to your self-doubt and self-limiting beliefs, if you'd be so kind as to, <laughs> to open up. How much time do you got? I, <laughs> I got so many. Uh, I, I think one of the first self-limiting beliefs that I really struggled with and still struggle with is around my body and food. Uh, so I used to be clinically obese. I'm not anymore. I'm 45 years old and today I'm in the best shape of my life. And it's not because of good genes. I, I do not have particularly athletic <laughs> genes, but the what's changed is that now I do what I say I'm going to do. 
Uh, I exercise when I say I will. I eat healthy because I said I will. This is this is what becoming indistractable is all about. Mm-hmm. But it's really something I, I struggled with to the point where, you know, what I remember when I was clinically obese, uh, I felt like food controlled me. And it was very self-limiting because there was this sense of, you know, it's McDonald's fault. It's the Cheetos fault. It's the junk food industry's fault. It's the sugar industry's fault. And again, even if that's true, even if that's true, it's a self-limiting belief. Because what do you do if you feel like it's everybody else's fault? Sit here and wait for them to change? That doesn't make any sense. Yes, the food, fast food industry is terrible. The sugar lobby is horrible. Let's change the laws. Yes, and in the meantime, are we gonna be fat and sick? Or are we gonna do something about it? And we have to do something about it because our life is slipping away every day unless we do. And so to me, that was how I overcame those self-limiting beliefs. I, I felt that these things controlled me. And it wasn't until I learned paths to gain greater agency over what I was doing and to actually be, I think, brave enough to go deeper. And this is why so many people, I think, resist this because when we really get down to it, like the reason I was obese, I wish I could tell you it was McDonald's fault. I wish I could tell you it was, you know, the fast food industry's fault. I wasn't eating because I was hungry. I wasn't even eating because food was delicious. What most people will tell you who are clinically obese, if they're really honest, maybe they need some counseling first to get there. Why are we obese? because we eat our feelings, right? I didn't eat because I was hungry. I was eating because I was bored. I was eating because I was lonely. I was eating because I felt so ashamed about how much I had just eaten. And it wasn't until I stepped back and focused on those issues, those internal triggers we were talking about earlier, and I learned new tactics to deal with that discomfort, now I could start making progress. And so that was for me a big breakthrough. And I think, you know, having had that experience years and years ago, is why I have this current fascination with how products and experiences can shape behavior today. Wow. I mean, just knowing you today and also for listeners, I've seen near running topless on a beach. <laughs> topless <laughs> sounds I've, way I've been, more risky. <laughs> <laughs> I've been throwing frisbees for my dog, feeling dumpy in my bikini and they whiz past me. Um, I find it really hard to believe that you were once obese, but just absolutely three cheers to you for, for getting past it. Amazing. Thanks. Yeah. And it's still something I struggle with, right? I still, uh, when I have these cravings, I've gotten a lot under control. One thing I still struggle with is late night snacking. And I actually came up with a few different methods to deal with that. But it's still something that I struggle with. You know, people who are indistractable, being indistractable doesn't mean you never get distracted. It means that you know why you got distracted and you take steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. And I think that's, I think, a, a lesson for all of us, for all self-limiting beliefs, that Poela Coelho had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So good, right? A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So it's okay if from time to time you go off track, you succumb to a self-limiting belief, but eventually we have to say, okay, I see what you did there. I see what's happening. Okay. How many times can we blame these things outside of ourselves before we say, okay, you got me this time. It's not going to happen again. So as long as we take steps today to prevent these self-limiting beliefs, these distractions from getting in our way, there is no distraction we can't overcome. So I know we've covered quite a lot. Do you have any other limiting beliefs you'd care to open up about? Uh, so we, we talked about a lot of the ones I used to have in terms of uh, a self-limiting beliefs around that I was addicted to technology. I used to believe that. Before I wrote Indistractable, I, I got myself a flip phone from Alibaba with no apps, no internet connection. I got myself a, a word processor with no internet connection. And I still got distracted. <laughs> right? Like Even when I thought that was the problem, it was all the tech. I would say, oh, there's this book on the shelf that I've been meaning to read. Or, oh, let me clean up my desk. Or 
this trash needs to be emptied. And I still kept getting distracted. And so it wasn't until I proved to myself that that wasn't the source of the problem that I had to go on this journey of actually thinking, okay, what is really going on? I'll give you a third one. Today, I'm a professional public speaker. I do a lot of conferences and events. And for years and years, I would get terrible stage fright. And when this would happen, I would have all these physiological symptoms, right? I would get shortness of breath. Even just talking about this right now, I can feel it coming back. I would get shortness of breath. My pulse would elevate. I would feel my heartbeat. My armpits would get super sweaty. And the self-limiting belief was I would tell myself, you see, if I was a real public speaker, I wouldn't have these symptoms. I wouldn't be feeling this. I wouldn't have all this anxiety. What's wrong with me, right? There must be something I'm, maybe I'm no good at this. Maybe I'm faking it. Maybe they're all going to discover how nervous I am and I'm going to totally blow it. And of course, that would lead me down this shame spiral that would make me even more nervous and increase my stage fright. And so that was a very powerful self-limiting belief that thankfully, in the course of, of researching my books, I came across a fantastic solution uh, that I talk about in the chapter on reimagining the triggers. That what we have to do here, this goes back actually to the very beginning of our conversation of it's not what happens to us, it's how we respond to what happens to us. So what I have learned to do is that now, and you know, I just spoke uh, last week, I went to India and spoke at a tech conference same symptoms, right? The sweatiness, the the heartbeat, all, all the same physiological symptoms. But the difference is I changed that self-limiting belief drastically. Now, the narrative in my head is not, I'm no good at this. They're going to discover I, I don't know what I'm talking about or, you know, why am I so nervous? If I was a real public speaker, this wouldn't happen. Now, the narrative is these physiological symptoms that I'm feeling, for example, my heart beating faster, this is my body getting me ready to do my best. You see, my heart is pumping quickly right now so that my brain can have all the oxygen it needs to deliver a spectacular presentation. And so by reframing the same exact symptoms, the same exact symptoms, but thinking about them differently, reimagining those triggers can make a world of difference. And and that can be in any case, right? Whether it's uh, I'm feeling flustered or I'm feeling distracted or I'm feeling annoyed or bored. If you can ask yourself, what is that emotion trying to tell you? How is that emotion serving you? These emotions are neutral, right? They're not good or bad. It's up to you to decide what message these emotions are sending you. So if you could just take a few minutes, everyone listening, and write down what are those sensations that you're you're trying to escape that you wish you could do without that are limiting you in some way, what is that emotion? How can you turn it around so that emotion is serving you, right? So that anxiety is not a bad thing, it's just your body preparing to do its best, right? Now it's serving you. And that changed the game for me. Do you really still get those symptoms? I absolutely do. I I, uh, <laughs> I can show you the physical evidence of my undershirts <laughs> after with the big uh, sweat stain. I'm getting sweaty right now, actually. <laughs> Gosh, you wouldn't know at all. You're always just such a beautiful, eloquent speaker. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, Nick. To wrap up, I'm asking all of my guests to nominate someone to come on this podcast, either someone you feel doesn't have any limiting beliefs, they've never experienced self-doubt, or someone that you just think could offer a really interesting perspective. Absolutely. So I think a great guest would be Nick Gray, who's a good friend of mine, who wrote a fantastic book called The Two-Hour Cocktail Party. It deals with such an important issue. It deals with this loneliness epidemic that we see uh, is happening throughout the industrialized world, that people are increasingly saying they have fewer friends fewer relationships and fewer tight connections in their life. And we know that this is a a huge problem, that loneliness is as detrimental to our health as smoking and obesity. But the problem isn't taking it anywhere near seriously. 
And what Nick has done is he's researched how to reconnect with people by having these very easy to throw cocktail parties. And he gives you a, a recipe guide for how to do that. And I think this relates very well to these self-limiting beliefs. I mean, one of the, the most common anxieties is around social anxiety, right? We, we drink many times to take the edge off so that we can deal with other people <laughs> in a social context. And Nick de- deals with this beautifully in, in making it easier to connect with others by hosting these cocktail parties. So I think you'd really enjoy talking to him. Yeah, I'd love to speak to him. I really relate actually to that, especially after COVID. I was suddenly very socially awkward and definitely needed a glass of wine. Aren't we all? <laughs> all right. Nick, it's been so brilliant to speak to you as, as ever. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall.